Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we have another mind-blowingly awesome guest on the show. We've got Ruth Purcell, synthetic biology scientist at Nourish Ingredients. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Thanks for having me, Amelia. It's great to be here. Awesome. That's a really good start. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? So my day job at the moment is working as a synthetic biology scientist at the alternative fat company, Nourish Ingredients. So that requires uh, working on molecular biology problems and applying some microbiology, cell biology, bit of biochemistry. I get to use a whole lot of different disciplines to try and create alternative fat products um, for alternative protein foods that are currently being consumed to try and replace animal products. And then by night, I've been working on a sewage testing project to try and, well, to screen Canberra sewage for COVID. And then in my spare time, I volunteer at the organization uh, Cellular Agriculture Australia. And this is a nonprofit aimed at promoting and connecting cellular agriculture communities in Australia. That was a lot more things than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, look, I love science and I do as much science as I possibly can fit into my day. I'm starting to wonder if there's any space left for other things. I mean... I enjoy baking, I enjoy music, I enjoy dancing, but yeah, science science is my primary passion. It's what gets me excited about life and about getting out of bed in the morning. So yep, I try and fill my day with as much science as possible. And clearly you're succeeding, which is exciting. I have so many questions, my goodness. <laughs> okay, so starting with alternative fats, we're... We've spoken to people from Val on the show, and that's like a fairly clear-cut kind of concept of they want to grow alternative meat products. But I think, well, I personally have never thought about what other products would could be grown or created in labs. Yep. So we've seen a massive boom in the alternative protein market in the last sort of four to five years. Um, and these products are slowly starting to get to uh, the consumer. We starting to see some on uh, supermarket shelves, mostly of the pro- plant protein kind. But I don't know how many of these you've tried to cook up in your kitchen or tasted at events, and they just don't quite match the real thing. And the big thing that's missing there is the fat component. You know, fat is not exactly the most sexy topic. It's been villainized in the media. Uh, When we think of protein, we think of these lean, strong, athletic people. Protein's great for us, right? But fat, we, you know, it's one day it's good, one day it's bad for you. But what we do know is that it makes food taste amazing. And if we're going to get people on board with this alternative protein movement, eating food that's better for themselves, for the environment, we need to make it taste good. People don't want to eat food that doesn't taste nice. We know that the environmental benefits of eating alternative protein and the animal welfare benefits are just not enough to get people on board. It has to taste good. So that's what Nourish Ingredients is working on, producing the lipids that are going to make alternative proteins just incredible. 
So we use uh, yeast and other microorganisms to uh, ferment these fats. And when they're included in the food matrix, they can make these proteins just completely irresistible. I'm now really excited because after some interviews with people doing sort of future food things, we went to the supermarket and got really excited. And then we looked at what was on offer and we're like feeling a bit less excited and bought some things. And then they're they're not bad, but they're not exciting. They're not like, I'm going to take a photo of this and send it to my mom and be like, you should try this because it's like mind blowing. And yeah, there's something about the mouthfeel maybe that's just kind of missing. Yep. So that's another big thing, texture. Um, So we know that there are different uh, types of fats, right? So we know we have uh, triacylglycerides and phospholipids. Those are the two uh, major types of fats that we're interested in. I don't know how much your listeners will know about the structure of fats, but... Say not a lot. All right. (laughs) So basically those two classes can be divided into... uh, like storage fats, which are the tag, triglycerides, and they have these three little fatty acid tails, and phospholipids, which are the main component of cell membranes, and they have uh, two fatty acid tails. That's sort of an easy way to distinguish them. And they have different roles in taste, texture, and mouthfeel. So I don't eat meat, and I don't eat animal products. I don't really enjoy a lot of them. I don't enjoy the environmental damage either. But when I've tried to, you know, eat some of these fake sausages or plant-based meatballs, it just, it leaves weird aftertaste in your mouth and it just doesn't give you that same satisfaction. And after I try these products, I just go straight back to my tin of chickpeas. I'm like, well, these veg, these beans, these vegetables actually taste better than this meat product, which is supposed to be giving vegans a new lease on life. Um, So yeah, Nourish is trying to make those products, which are just quite frankly disappointing, become something that we crave almost. That's that's what fats can do to food. Now, you mentioned earlier that you're using yeast to ferment a fat. Yep. My understanding of fats is like you can get animal fats and then you can also get different kind of oils and things out of essentially squishing things like olives etc how do you get fat out of yeast they seem very skinny to me yeah it's 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 a very complicated process and it's one we're still working on yep. so we make sure that we use yeasts that are known to accumulate high levels of fat already so these are called oleaginous organisms and the literature has shown in the past that they accumulate a lot of fat So already uh, a large percentage of their dry weight is going to be lipid. But we do have to grow really large volumes to get quite a small amount of fat out of them. And I work on the molecular biology side, but there's we have a team, a lipid analysis team, and part of their job is optimizing the protocols to break open these yeasts, extract the lipids, without um, breaking them down because one of an easy way to break open cells because their membranes are made of lipids is to destroy the lipids which is one of the more standard ways to break the cells open but we want to keep the lipids intact and not break them down so that's a very complicated question which our lipid team is working on but yeah you're right it is pretty hard to get 
a lot of fat out of these yeasts. But you, the fermenters that we have will eventually be um, up to a thousand liters of yeast growing at a time. So actually, if you think inside of inside a brewery, I'm not sure if you've seen those massive steel vats. That's sort of the type of thing that we're going to be using to ferment these yeasts. It really is. When I say fermentation, I really mean it. We are fermenting yeast. It's the same process that we use to make wine, beer. It's a really, really ancient technology that we're using to do this. And somehow, instead of ending up with alcohol, you're ending up with fats. Right. So I think there's a little technical clarification I should make here and something that confused me when I first entered the field. On, in a purely biochemical sense, fermentation is that alternate, pro, uh, alternate pathway that organisms can use when they um, don't have the required resources to make uh, ATP, the energy molecule, in the uh, most straightforward way. And then fermentation is a backup way of making energy. And lipid is not, a, is not the result of that process. You get alcohol or lactic acid, you know, like why your muscles burn when you're running because you're, you start growing a fermentation because it's not enough oxygen. That is the definition of fermentation in a truly biochemical sense. But in industry, when we talk about fermentation, it's just pretty much any process that a microorganism undergoes when you feed it and just let it do its thing. And when you can extract a, a, a byproduct of these reactions, we call that fermentation. So it's a very broad general term, and it did confuse me for a while as well. So you're forgiven <laughs> if you why on earth are you saying fermentation and getting fat at the end? Confuse me too. Fermentation is just a word we use for any uh, reaction that we let a microorganism do when in that's the industry term yeah right my I, I thought I knew about fermentation clearly I did not I mean I didn't either before I started <laughs> are these like naturally occurring yeasts yep so that's a really cool thing that we've been able to do um, you can isolate these right from soil from fruit uh, from the environment around us so uh, a lot of them have been obviously studied as, you know, they get that grass certification generally regarded as safe. Um, so they're definitely safe for us, but these aren't some scary yeasts that have been developed by mad scientists in terrifying laboratories. These are, these are microorganisms that you're probably consuming anyway on your food from the supermarket. They're everywhere. Oh, no, I was just going to ask. So everyone's aware I guess, of animals and we're aware of plants and where we understand them as different, I guess, forms of life. The real question I want to ask is, is there anyone who gets upset about the death of yeast? Yep. So, you know, if you're upset about eating mushrooms, then maybe you'll be upset about eating yeast, but they fall into that same, that same kingdom. And, you know, we don't have any information indicating that yeasts are sentient beings. They're single-celled organisms. And if you don't want to eat plants and, I mean, if you don't want to eat yeast, then why are you, why are you eating plants? That, I mean, plants are multicellular organisms. Yeasts are unicellular organisms. So in that sense, you could almost argue that plants are more of a unified, connected being than a yeast cell. Does that make sense? 
Totally. And I appreciate that you actually answered that question. (laughs) So look, I mean, there are people out there who have their own moral uh, rules as to why they can't eat X, Y, and Z. And at the end of the day, that's okay. As long as, you know, like you're able to look after yourself and stay alive, but we are not able to photosynthesize. We have to put things into our mouths to stay alive. And if you're happy with eating a pear, I don't see why you should have an issue with eating a yeast. Very simple, not particularly bright little little beings. Uh, look, I think yeast are beautiful. I love them. They make me so happy. I get out of bed and I'm just so excited to go and be with my yeast. I don't want to undermine yeast. I think they're beautiful, but I'm also happy to eat them. I had no idea you could extract really anything of use from yeast. I thought that their primary, I guess, value was in the processes that they could create mm. rather than the, the end product. So that's another awesome thing that yeast get up to. I think the thing is to remember that when they are grown at scale, there's such a large volume of yeast to work with that you can get an appreciable amount of say a protein or a lipid or whatever you are trying to extract from these organisms. But yes, they're wonderfully diverse in their uses. Now, you mentioned that you're also doing some voluntary work for Cell Agriculture Australia. Yep. What sort of stuff are you up to with them? And what is what is Cell Agriculture Australia? Yeah, so Cell Agriculture Australia is this wonderful non-profit uh, set up by Dr. Bianca Lay, she is a cell biologist herself. And at the beginning of last year, she looked around and realized that we had a couple cellular agriculture companies across Australia, but they weren't really particularly connected. And there wasn't this huge drive to advance cellular agriculture in Australia. And she just couldn't understand why, because Australia's got this leading agricultural sector we're one of the leaders in stem cell research, and those are the two big components of cellular agriculture. So she set out on this mission to establish connected communities of cellular agricultural researchers in both academia and industry, uh, develop talent pipelines to pull young scientists into the field, get them excited about and attract them into cellular agriculture, and as well as to spread the word of explaining what is cellular agriculture and do some really good science communication because I think that's one thing that's been lacking in the field and definitely there's a bit of miscommunication around what is cellular agriculture and there's sort of misleading stories misleading images about it so really we have these three pillars to uh, develop this talent pipeline uh, connect cellular agriculture uh, researchers and also investors and then to really distill the science for the public to explain what, what, what it is and why they should be excited about it. So yes, my role in cellular agriculture Australia is in the media and communications team. And I work at the moment mostly um, distributing information about the latest happenings in the field, as well as working on articles to explain the science to the public and give talks to other university students to get them keen about the field. That sounds like fun. It really is. And it's such a great team to work with. You know, one thing I can really say to anyone at the beginning of their 
career is go out and do some voluntary work, get involved in, you know, uh, these organizations that require skills that aren't just pure science. You'll learn so much and it's such a rewarding thing to do and you meet so many great people. And it's the most authentic way of networking. It really is. You know, uh, I was, I came home on Friday afternoon and we were having a meeting about, you know, our sales communication strategy for the next month. And it was just so great to have these friends who were, you know, as interested and excited about science and I as I was. And I was like, wow, this is this is great to know people who are as nerdy about this topic as I am. And who want to spread the love. Absolutely. No, it's fantastic. Would recommend. Are there any particular myths that you'd like to jump on, like right now? Have there been things that are reoccurring? Like you mentioned some imagery that's out there. Is there any what can we squish? All right. So one big thing that is, um, I think, quite damaging to the perception of cellular agriculture, uh, specifically uh, cultivated meat, is the idea that it's lab grown. When consumers are eating cultivated meat, cell cultured meat, they are going to be no laboratories involved. It's going to be in a food grade facility and as I mentioned earlier about the uh, fermenters you see in a brewery, so the bioreactors are what we call them, it's going to be absolutely food-grade standards. There's going to be no pets, no crazy scientists, no toxic chemicals. It's going to be meeting all the standards that any other food that you eat will have to meet. And this idea that you get these little chunks of meat grown in Petri dishes, I think is really misleading it's just simply not true yes at the moment the research and development is happening in laboratories and it's your typical research setting but once we have products that consumers are going to be eating the lab is going to be out of the question it's going to be all down to food scientists and it's going to be in food grade facilities so if you have issues with eating food other than that pick straight off a tree or straight out of the ground, that food is going through the same processes that cell cultured meat will be developed under. So I think that that is quite a damaging perception that this meat is grown by mad scientists and petri dishes, because people think somehow weird things are happening there, but it's really going to be treated the same as any other food. I think even just the idea that there's a whole lot of weird scientists with petri dishes sort of that's a damaging misconception for science in general absolutely absolutely i think one big thing is that there's so many regulations uh to get uh into a into scientific research laboratory you no one's allowed to run around loose there especially in australia the amount of paperwork and the amount of vetting that happens everyone is so thoroughly checked before they're let loose in the lab and There's so many rules. Scientists are not mad. They are very, very well controlled, in fact, you know, probably more so than many other professions. You know, we have to really, really look after the environment and ourselves and the people who are going to be interacting with the products that we develop. It's it's really a really tightly controlled process. No one's doing crazy things. I think it's probably worth also pointing out that these experiments cost a lot of money, at least I'm assuming. And it's not like you can just set up a lab in your, in your shed and 
go wild and end up with like a lab grown kangaroo it's huge amounts of money so it's not like they're going to be just throwing away experiments on something because it seems like a good idea after a couple of beers look this the price of science makes me cry it's it, it is horribly expensive it's it's actually quite scary to think about so we are so careful with what we do everything is treated very as it is very precious every tiny little amount we use it's it's hundreds of dollars for tiny little reactions so we are very mindful of that and very careful with what we do you know we're very regulated and controlled we're creative when we're coming up with ideas and putting them into into practice it's a very safe regulated environment nothing to be scared of absolutely so safe I do find it entertaining that someone thinks that there's going to be one person maybe like a scientist who's just growing your hamburger and that somehow that's going to be an affordable hamburger like there's no way that system would scale at all Oh, absolutely. That like one of the big, big, big barriers in getting cell cultured meat to market is the scalability issue. How do we get this to an affordable price? Because you know how I was talking earlier about taste being a big barrier? The second big barrier is price. When people think about food, you don't think about what's good for the environment, what's good for the health. You know, these are long-term invisible effects that we can't see immediately. What drives people when they're shopping for food? What does it taste like? How much does it cost? Those are the two big questions. And those are the big barriers uh, that we need to overcome to get cellular agriculture to become part of your main mainstream diet. So yeah, scaling is is really, really important. It's That's why we have to uh, you know make use of these food grade facilities that can do things at scale that are cost effective. It's not, it's not one person putting funky things into a petri dish and he's going to give you some weird, you don't know what, some grown mammoth or something in it from a petri dish. It's, yeah, tightly regulated and in really scalable, a really scalable environment. Just, sorry, there's so much in, like, what you've just said, just as that, as that uh, with that as a misconception, because I think it also reflects on the lack of understanding about food systems in general, and it's probably if people actually sat down and thought about like how that mushroom or how that tomato or whatever got on their plate and they bought it from a supermarket, like it will also have been grown in a large facility. Absolutely. So that's, that's another thing. So, you know, people are always scared of chemicals and, you know, these scientific words that sound scary, but if you take a step back and think about all the food you're eating everything's a chemical and everything is a processed food to some extent and as I said earlier unless you're literally digging the potato out of the ground or picking the apple off the tree and putting it straight into your mouth it's gone through some degree of processing so to say that processed foods are scary but then go and eat things from the supermarket I think you've sort of uh, decided not to think about how those foods got there in the first place processes are involved in most of the foods that you're eating a little bit of voluntary blindness there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when people get freaked out about cultivated meat, but don't want to think about the processes that went into slaughtering a chicken or a cow or any other meat, but think that somehow cell cultivated meat is icky. Do you know how icky a slaughterhouse is? If you think about that and compare it to the really clean, sterile, controlled process of growing meat from cells, 
yep I think if we just choose to ignore it we can really turn a you know turn a blind eye to a lot of really gross processes so after my interview with Val I got a lot of people who the main question is when are we going to be able to buy this the cultivated meats there's mm-hmm. like synthetic cells etc when are we going to be able to go to the supermarket and buy it because there is a lot of excitement for it there's some misconceptions but the people who are keen are like really keen I know look I'm one of those really keen people and I just need to preface this by saying that I'm in no position to make predictions about when it's going to be available and if I do I'll probably be wrong but what I can tell you is that Self-cultivated meat did become available in select restaurants and on a food delivery app in Singapore last year. So self-cultivated chicken is available to the general public if you are in Singapore. I think um, it's $23 a piece uh, for a little bit of chicken. Um, so that that is only in sort of a higher-end restaurant. It's not available on supermarket stores. But I have heard companies say they want to be on on you know supermarket stores in a year to two years I personally struggle to believe that it'll be that quick but the there are rumblings of around five years and I know there are uh, cultivated fish companies there's one called wild type in America which now has a sushi bar and these tastings are um, I think sporadically available I don't think it's a permanent fixture but slowly it's being, you know, being drip fed a bit of still cultivated meat here and there. Not broadly available, but all I can say is soon. I can't put a number on it just yet. Okay, audience, you're just going to have to be frustrated a little while longer, but... Look, I'm frustrated <laughs> too, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I reckon if we keep an eye out for pop-ups, like it sounds like it'll start off in kind of little pop-up things or maybe at those sort of like food and wine festivals something like that or just America or Singapore you know (laughs) maybe maybe not this year but uh hopefully soon not no traveling yet but that's one of the reasons I'm desperate to go to Singapore I gotta try the still cultivated chicken that's I didn't know it was available anywhere so that's exciting also really cool this delivery app that can bring still cultivated chicken like it's like you know it skipped all the steps of you know you have to go and find it but you can deliver it to your door in Singapore it's a way of solving a lot of problems there's a lot less negotiation with supermarkets blah 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 blah. just bang turns up your door oh the dream honestly (laughs) back to the original set of questions what does an average day at work look like for you right so an average day of work really depends on the cycle I'm in with what we're trying to achieve at uh, firstly nourish and then what I'm doing in terms of you know my lab work outside of my main job and then my volunteering commitment so it varies um, in sort of in cycles at the moment it is a lot of uh, going to the lab early in the morning and starting with some transformations so putting DNA into my yeast to get them to express a gene that I want them to make so that they can produce a lipid product at the end that we can extract. Doing a lot of that sort of work, screening strains that I've made previously, and then 
I'm get, hopefully getting to read a bit of the literature surrounding these, uh, you know, these ideas that we're trying to utilize. Um, I get to do a little bit of exploring in other um, in other filamentous fungi that are really interesting to our work. So that's been really exciting, learning about, you know, yeasts that aren't typically used for biotechnology. So that's my lab work for Nourished at the moment. And then in the evenings, I get to go and uh, play with the sewage. I get to screen. Uh, doesn't it, it, It's a lot more fun than it sounds, I, I promise. I, it's actually surprisingly neutral. You know, you'd expect it to be quite gross, but it's, it's actually not that bad. In the evenings, I get to go and use similar techniques to what I do at Nourish, actually. It's all molecular biology at the end of the day. And I get to screen sewage for different viruses, which is really exciting because sewage can tell you so much about what's happening in the community. So what I've mostly been doing is tackling an academic question of how do we make COVID screening uh, more accessible and cheaper. Sewage is obviously a really complicated matrix to work with because of all, you know, everything ends up in the sewage, right? Like there's a lot of um, things that could be detrimental to a tiny molecular reaction which requires very controlled precise conditions but now you've got all the stuff from the environment pouring into your reaction and potentially inhibiting it so the standard way of getting around that is to use these pretty expensive kits to you know eliminate inhibitors and uh, get the reaction conditions really perfect for these enzymes that then go ahead and uh, allow you to detect fragments of dna which will tell you what um, virus or bacteria in your sewage and I've been developing a technique to do this cheaply because sewage screening has been a really important part of the COVID response but in countries and communities that aren't as fortunate or financially well off as Australia this can be quite challenging because those kits you know as we said earlier science is horribly expensive it makes me cry how expensive science is so we've tried to develop this uh, technique to get around those really expensive loopholes and I'm really proud of what our team's managed to achieve we've yeah we've managed to get around using expensive kits by using a component which is in any lab so that was that's been one really exciting thing to do and then it's, it's actually quite fun because I go and do all the sewage work at night and it's dark and creepy in the lab and I'm pouring sewage. It really sets the scene. I quite enjoy it. Um, that does make you sound like the uh, crazy scientist. We I know. It, <laughs> it does sound like the crazy scientist that I said I wasn't. But you know what? When I'm working at the end of the of the food system, I think that's okay. So, you know, I like to think that I take, I take you on the journey from start to finish. I help make the food that you put in your mouth. And then I also help with what comes out at the end. You know, it seems like I do this. Is really two different unconnected things, but really what unites those are my interest in uh, virus eradication. So one, what really drew me to cellular agriculture was its um, ability to mitigate the impact on the environment. And one of the big things that we've seen recently with meat consumption, not just you know climate change, of course, but the spread of these like pandemic viruses if you think back to all the epidemic and pandemic viruses we've seen in the last sort of 70 80 years so many of them come back to animal consumption and 
obviously we've seen, you know, MERS and the two SARS viruses, but HIV, Ebola, they all have these animal origins and it's humans interfering with nature for uh, like consumption of animals. And it's not, I'm not trying to blame people here for eating meat. Of course not, you know, it's part of how our society is constructed and it's just how it is at the moment. But if we can come up with solutions that don't require us to interfere with nature, kill animals and, you know, start circulating animal flesh in the human food system, we can avoid the consumption and spread of these viral diseases. So really my interest in epidemiology and viruses is what unites these, these two quite different things that I do. That's a fascinating perspective that no one's brought up before. Yeah, I think like that that is really important to me. And I, I mean, it should be obvious to everyone right now because we've all spent, the whole world has spent the last 18 months in lockdown at various points. And, you know, COVID has touched everyone. And we know that one of the most likely reasons that it's spread is because of animal meat consumption. That's, you know, we don't obviously have a defined origin for the disease. There's nothing is absolutely certain, but the prevailing theory is, of course, that came from an animal host, and yeah, it entered it entered through our interfere our interference with nature, and meat consumption is a huge part of that. That that's that's how we end up where we are. So, really important at the moment to be thinking about those sort of things. I think you get up to a lot of things. <laughs> as I said, I love science. <laughs> yep, I appreciate as well the. The reflective humour on the beginning and the ending of the food chain. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like I like big picture thinking. I like to take a step back and consider the whole. And I think, you know, the two things, the two ways I engage with science at the moment really, really encapsulate that from start to finish. <laughs> How did you get involved with the uh, sewage testing? So a lab that I previously worked at as an undergrad had been started, had started on this project during the pandemic while I was in honours. And after I finished honours, they were looking for hands to help because um, some of the other researchers working on the project were moving on into other postdoc positions and they needed someone who was keen to get their hands dirty and had some molecular biology skills and I got on really well with the supervisor and I was like, yep, sure. Sounds great. Sounds fun. So that, that's how I got involved with the um, sewage testing. So, yeah, I think one thing to note there is that um, in science, it's really, it's really good to keep connections and networking uh, happening because that is how you're going to get a lot of your jobs. And, you know, that's how I got my job at Nourish. I, I reached out to people, had conversations, had a chat and, you know, I just wanted, when I reached out to Nourish, all I wanted to do is find out about what their mission was, what they were trying to achieve, and I ended up with the job. Same with the sewage testing. It's through talking to people, being interested in their work, and just wanting to know more about what they do. Being curious and a little bit forward. Absolutely. And it took me so long to realize that I was allowed to ask these sort of questions. I always thought that I had to hang back and wait to be noticed and wait to be offered things. But turns out you have to be bold and you have to ask questions and you have to ask for what you want if you want, if you 
gonna get somewhere i i really didn't realize that that's how people were doing it you have to be pretty bold and you have to be willing to be quite vulnerable and ask for what you want if you have much chance of getting it and ultimately a lot of people like being asked about their thing absolutely people love talking about themselves they really do and people also really like it when you come forward and ask questions about what they're trying to achieve people really like it when you take the initiative to approach them but also people love talking about themselves so they're not as scary as they look they're more than happy to go on a on a rant about what they get up to it's so true there's a whole podcast in fact right here based on that premise (laughs) (laughs) yep so sort of on that note how have you ended up in this situation where you've sort of you've got your two jobs and a volunteer position what was your path say from high school to where you are now so in high school I always loved science and I knew that science was going to be what I did I would think I was very lucky in that I had parents who encouraged me to go digging around in the garden for insects and uh, collecting frogs and my father was a a pathologist who encouraged me to get involved in the lab pretty early. I had some amazing teachers as well. And I was always been excited about science. So I was lucky enough. So I am uh, from South Africa. I went to high school in South Africa. And I was lucky enough to uh, do some Olympiads uh, when I was in high school. And I managed to actually win a prize to come to the Australian National University during year 12. And I saw this university, heard about um, this program called the Bachelor of Philosophy, which allows you to start research in first year. And so I applied for the program and was really lucky to get into it. And it was just an opportunity I couldn't turn down. So I came to Australia uh, after high school and I got to get into the lab and start doing research in first year, which is just the most wonderful experience and I realize now how incredibly privileged I was to be able to do so many research projects um, during undergrad and really get hands-on experience in wet labs and with academics who gave me the time of day and really you know believed in me and guided me and got me excited about research and I just can't think of my life what my life would be like if I you know wasn't able to get into the lab every day and ask questions and answer them with you know my cells and my pets it's just been the best experience so after I did honors um, I finished in the middle of pandemic not the best time to be trying to move cities or find jobs after the pandemic so I carried on working in the lab of one of my honors examiners actually she had some work for me to do And then I heard about um, Nourish, which was a startup, or is a startup, that was uh, getting established in one of the research schools at ANU. And I thought, well, this is very convenient. I want to see what industry is all about. I'd love to just, you know, dip my toes into something outside of academia, see what it's it's like. So as I said, I reached out to this company and I had a chat with them and they were actually wanting to start hi- uh, making some junior hires and I got a job with them. And at the same time, uh, this person whose lab I've been working in straight after honors, one of my examiners, uh, she was looking for someone to carry on working on one of her projects. And I thought, well, you know, 
I may as well do that at the same time and use a similar skills. And actually, the part-time job that I've had working on the sewage testing has, um, you know, taught me some skills that I've then been able to apply uh, in my job at Nourish. So some of the things that I've learned while doing one job have, you know, benefited the other. You know, it's easy to think that perhaps doing two jobs, your focus is a bit split and you're not able to commit fully to, fully to one. But they actually have complemented each other quite well. And by exposing myself to as much as possible, I've learned more skills which would then be better at my at the other job. So it's been a really good experience. And then uh, CELAG Australia, I, I volunteering has always been really, really important to me. It's something that you know, was fostered in high school and then throughout undergrad, I always made sure I was getting involved in science outreach and you know just community outreach. And I hadn't done much of that during the pandemic because all those sort of opportunities were closed. They didn't want they wanted people interacting as little as possible, and I was really missing that. So um, I heard about uh, Bianca's work, and I reached out to her, and yeah, got involved with what she was up to. That's pretty cool, and I, it's so wonderful to hear about people being supported and like that that you were encouraged to do science at high school to the point where you ended up getting to come to Australia that's that's really awesome oh I mean I absolutely owe so much of where I am to uh, my high school science teachers my parents as well of course they you know they really are passionate about just asking questions and uh, helping you find out helping like my sister and I uh, find the answers to them by you know going through the process not just giving us answers but telling us to go and figure it out for ourselves so I was really lucky in that regard and really really grateful for my high school science teachers I owe a lot to them I think not being given the answer is actually a privilege being encouraged to find your own mm. it really is no whenever I would ask my parents questions they were like go work it out yourself you know there's no point in telling someone something when they can learn how to find the answer themselves. That's a far more valuable skill. So grateful to my parents for that one too. <laughs> so am I allowed to ask you what's next? Oh yeah, absolutely. What's next? <laughs> so um, what's next? I So I have been working at Nourish Ingredients and working on the sewer testing project for well, the whole year. And my next move is to Melbourne to work on a PhD. So it's been a hard decision, of course, because I really love um, the team in Canberra. But as I said at, a while ago, my this, the uniting theme of the work that I do is my passion for understanding viruses so we can figure out how to live with them better. So I'm going to Melbourne to do a PhD um, at the Doherty Institute, which is an infectious disease and immunology uh, institute. And my work is going to be on HIV and COVID and a little bit of TB as well, looking at uh, antibody responses to these diseases. So infectious disease, viruses, that, that's, right. that's where I'm heading. It'll be interesting. Oh, I'm so excited. Both to move to Melbourne and just to learn more about viruses. I love viruses and infectious diseases. They're really cool. And I think everyone listening will be grateful for the fact that there are people like you who are deeply passionate about that because that's how 
you know, we respond to situations like COVID. We have nerds who yeah. care. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, and I think um, circling, circling back and zooming out, um, it's important to approach it from the other side as well. You know, we need to be looking at these viruses, how to tackle them once they're here. But that's where cellular agriculture is really important. Perhaps stopping these problems before they start. Cellular agriculture allows us to skip the steps that got us to COVID in the first place and working on the problems that uh, cause these social and environmental issues is equally important. So, you know, looking at it from two ends of the spe- uh, spectrum and you know, attacking a problem at different points, very important. Yep. We can't just focus on one bit. It's, it's a whole system. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Have you got any advice you'd give to a young person who's listening to this and they're like, either viruses are awesome, and I think there will be a lot of uh, high school students particularly who are like, we need to do something about viruses, or who are just like, this whole cell ag thing, that's that's where it's at. Like, have you got any advice for them? Yeah, so I think the first thing to do is really, if you if you're feeling split between so many different interests, is to go and explore all those different passions and see what you're good at and what you enjoy most. So that's one thing I'm really grateful in my undergrad to have the have had the opportunity to go and work in a whole lot of different research labs. I think all up I did about eight or nine different research projects throughout undergrad, and I think about a third of my undergrad study was actually just doing research projects. So I'm really lucky to have you know, some of my research projects were in the Daintree rainforest, literally dangling out of a canopy crane. And then other projects were doing detailed molecular biology in a wet lab. And then I did work in a dry lab. So I really got to explore all the different possibilities of what I could do. So if you're feeling torn between different disciplines, I'd encourage you to go and find ways to get involved with each of them. And see what really makes you feel whole, what gets you excited, what and what you're good at as well. So go out and explore different diverse topics while you can. That's what's great about being young, is that you haven't committed to one to one discipline just yet. You aren't set down a certain track and you can go and see what's out there. So that's that's really exciting. And one thing I'd recommend. And the other thing is something we've touched on before, it's just being bold and approaching people and asking for help and I wish I'd known this sooner but networking and just um, asking people how they got places and can I can I do something with you can I be involved is is really helpful and it'll get you further than you might expect and no matter how successful someone appears they're still a human and they're still approachable absolutely like you know you think professors and and these Fancy doctors are really scary and godlike figures, but I hate to break it, but they're just human like you. They do everything that you do and they've just been around on this earth for a little bit longer and they might know some more things than you do, but they're actually friendly humans. Most of them are friendly and they would love to help you and they're not scary. And the more you approach them, the less scary they'll get. Indeed. You just get used to seeing them as other people and you know they as as we said they they love interacting with you know people who are interested in their work people love talking about themselves and something I've discovered recently as well is that 
particularly older people who are a little bit more cynical or jaded, they love talking to a young, energetic person who isn't cynical or jaded and just can keep going and brings their energy and passion because that helps remind them why they're doing the thing that they're doing. Oh, that's definitely true. And talking about like older people who might be more experienced and therefore seem more scary, most of them actually just love imparting advice on young people too. So do not be afraid to approach um, older people. One one thing I've been doing a lot recently is getting in touch with my parents' friends and just asking them about what they do, um, advice they might have, just their perspective on the world. And it's really interesting to get, you know, uh, their thoughts on things and also their advice. And they love talking to young people about their feelings on the world. So again, highly recommend that's a really interesting takeaway. I like that idea. Yeah, it's it's really good, I think, to speak to people who are not, you know, of your generation. Uh, they've seen more than you have and they have different perspective and it's just really good to um, have friends who are different ages. Oh, totally. Especially if they're older than, well, no, younger than you is good too because then they can, yeah, yeah it works all the ways. Great advice. <laughs> Were there any other misconceptions or myths that you wanted to talk about? Okay, I think the main one was, you know, lab-grown meat is not going to be lab-grown meat at all. It's going to be cell-cultured meat grown in food-grade facilities. The other thing we spoke about is that, you know, there's no need to be scared of chemicals because everything is a chemical. Yes, there are toxic chemicals which are harmful to your health, but just the broad umbrella term chemical I think is overused and, you know, uh, things are labeled chemical, therefore scary. And it's quite interesting, actually. Recently, uh, Nourish Ingredients had a media release on some of the work we've been doing, and it was shared by ABC Radio, which has a Facebook platform. And just reading some of the comments on Facebook really, really highlighted to me how, um, you know, miseducated some people are around Uh, science and the understanding of food in general and people everyone eats food therefore everyone you know thinks that they are an expert on food just because they eat it um so that was you know quite quite a little bit disturbing actually to see that some of the thoughts that people had around food and uh you know processed foods in general because food can be processed to be healthier so i think just going back and thinking about what is a chemical everything's a chemical and there was yeah some really uh, miseducated comments around alternative proteins and alternative fats being a chemical disaster but at their core they're molecularly identical to the chemicals that make up the meat in the animal flesh that you eat so when you when you think about the word chemical just really think about what do you mean when you say that? So the lipids that we make are chemically identical to the lipids you would found, find in a cow. And that's why they're able to replicate that taste and mouthfeel and sensation of the thing which is grown in the animal flesh because they are chemically identical. So don't be scared of chemicals. And the other perhaps misconception that is worth tackling is on GMOs, and I might be beating a dead horse here because we've been having this conversation for decades, but really it's the same thing, you know. 
it's fragments of DNA which are chemically identical to the fragments of DNA found in nature. And when we shuffle them around, why are people suddenly scared of them? And GMOs are going to find their way into some of these alternative proteins and alternative lipids. And a lot of companies, it's actually been quite sad to see a lot of companies going out of their way to um, make their products non-GMO because they know that getting consumer acceptance for a GMO product, uh, product is just so hard and it's something they just don't want to tackle. There are a few companies, and in fact, if you're interested in you know companies using GMOs to produce amazing food, go and look at Perfect Day. They are really proud of their GMO process and they've done a really great job of trying to educate people about why GMOs just are not scary. And Impossible Foods, also another uh, alternative protein company, has done a great job of embracing GMOs and trying to educate people about why GMOs don't have to be this terrifying thing and why they're actually really good for the environment. So I would encourage people to really think about why they might be skeptical of GMOs and understand that at a molecular level, we're not doing anything wild or scary. It's we're doing things that make food better for you and for the environment. There's some particularly GMOs. That's a big one to try and battle because that's that's been going like since the 70s, maybe. Oh, yeah, that's why, as I said, I don't think I'm going to try and change people with 30 seconds here. But if, you know, I can encourage someone to really think about why they might think GMOs are scary and understand that at a molecular level, DNA is DNA. And just because perhaps a different organism is producing that that order of DNA, the, the bases that make up DNA, I don't really see why you should think that is terrifying when it's making the identical product. Yeah, but it's it's a battle that's been going on for decades. So I I really hope we we get around to, you know, making people understand and accept why it's not a terrible thing. But yeah, those those are my big ones. GMOs, chemicals and lab grown meat. And or should I say why we shouldn't be calling it lab grown meat. Yes. Yes. Um and May I say you were very brave uh, slash put yourself potentially in harm's way looking at Facebook comments. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad you got oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, 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 got to know what's out, I've got to know what's out there. I mean, uh, a really important thing to me is uh, communication of science. You know, what, what is the point of, you know, being in a lab and not sharing it with people? That's so much of the joy of science is sharing it with others. And it's a, it's quite a it can be a tricky skill to master, and it takes a bit of practice to, uh, you know, pitch it to the right audience. So it's something that I really try and try and work on is that is that communication. So yeah, seeing seeing what the audience needs to know, I was told do not look through the Facebook comments, but you don't know what people don't know until you see what they're saying to try and understand where they're coming from. So for, in order for me to know about the type of thing I should be explaining to people I have to see what information was missing and honestly it was quite an informative exercise reading through those comments and seeing where people's information gaps are where the misinformation is rife you know it really showed me these are the areas you need to focus on this is what needs to explain better this is what science communicators 
need to be working on in order to get the message across. And these are the things that need to be clarified. So, yep, it was a bit scary because I was personally being attacked, but it also gave me a lot of information and it's helped me formulate some of the things that I want to try and explain more clearly to people. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. I'll need it. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you would like to cover? Yeah, I think the only thing I have to say really is for people who are interested in, you know, the environment and the food they eat to go and do some, just maybe some reading into cell ag and see what a difference it can make. The food that you eat is something that you can so easily control. You know, we often think that these problems are way out of our control. What can we possibly do? But the food that you eat is something that you personally control multiple times a day and it's something that has such a big impact so I would really love for people to think more about how their small actions can contribute to making the world a better place and food is a really good place to start and clearly it's only going to get tastier that is our goal it really is so (laughs) tastier and more sustainable two wonderful things and I'm going to suggest everyone goes checks out the cell egg Australia uh, website and because that'll be a great place to start doing a little bit of reading absolutely and if you're a student interested in getting involved in cell ag um, we have this incredible tool called the pathways tool and that helps you find pathways into cellular agriculture and it's for students both leaving high school and undergrad as well as people who have a few more years of experience under their belt and it's be designed really beautifully and you can pick either the majors that you might want to specialize in and how those majors can lead you to a career in cell ag or you can look at the problems that you're interested in solving and see what skills you need to help solve those problems and you know this the movement to get cellular agriculture uh, into the mainstream is an all hands on deck situation we need people with all kinds of skills it's not just molecular biologists cell biologists biochemists we need uh, computer software designers we need Uh, chemical engineers we need marketing um, people with marketing experience we need almost every single skill you can think of accountants lawyers ip um, lawyers i guess Uh, we need all skills is what i'm trying to say so even if you think you can't contribute because you might have the wrong skill set i'm sure there's a place for you in the cellular agriculture community so go and look at the pathways tools on the cellular agriculture australia website Love a good pathway. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Actually, I, I'm pretty sure you've been developing career maps recently. Yep. So uh, this is sort of ties in with that. The pathways tool is a really, really excellent um, bit of work. I personally wasn't involved in making it, but shout out to the rest of the team who was involved in its um, formation. It's a really, really informative, useful tool. And it's really exciting getting uh, high school students coming back to us saying, I use this tool and I figured my life out. This is what I'm going to do. I got an email from a 17-year-old the other day saying, you know, these are all the things that I want to do and this is how I'm going to get involved in cellular agriculture and this is how I'm going to tackle food insecurity. And it's just so amazing to see people using it and finding their way into the field to answer these big problems that are facing everyone. We'll definitely include a link to that one. Very cool. Have you got a shout out for us? Is there someone that everyone listening or an organization that we should all give high fives to? 
in terms of giving a shout out to people at the moment, apart from um, the incredible work done by the volunteers at Cell Life Australia and my amazing company, Nourish Ingredients, trying to make food more tasty and sustainable, given the current situation in New South Wales and Victoria, I think it really is the frontline workers that we need to be giving a shout out to. They've been working tirelessly for 18 months now and you know my heart really goes out to people on the front line so yeah my my shout out is to the healthcare workers because they've really really been through a lot <laughs> and many many COVID safe high fives to all of them oh, and <laughs> and all everyone who supports them and the cleaners and all the ancillary people because it's been a long time and you're still doing awesome that's amazing Hmm. thank you for that one they do deserve a lot of high fives <laughs> they really really do and I think especially people like cleaners going unnoticed uh, yeah need to think about who's doing the invisible hard work and thank you to the sewage testers because that's a really important part of the whole system as well okay. another another not so glamorous job done in the dark of night um yes Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ruth. This has been very educational, everything from fermentation to sewage and just all the things that we can look forward to eating in the future. It's not the sewage, obviously, but <laughs> fermented things. It's going to be great. I'm excited for future food. So am I. Thanks, Amelia. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks. Thanks.